You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Lord God, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for this beautiful night where we can be in your presence, where we can hear your word. And I ask, Lord, as we open the scriptures, that you would open our eyes to see, open our hearts to hear what it is you might have to say to us as we continue our discussion of baptism. And Lord, that we could truly be those who keep these great commandments, those who love you with all our hearts, minds, and strength. And Lord, those who love our neighbors as ourselves. And we know, Lord, that you forgive us when we fail, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, good evening. Uh, we are continuing our series out of this book, Being Christian, by Rowan Williams. And we're continuing tonight to talk about uh, baptism. Tonight we'll talk about baptism, and then next week we'll start talking about the Eucharist. He considers the Christian life under the heading of these four um, ideas or practices, baptism, Bible, Eucharist, and prayer. And he asks the question, or the book is really an answer to the question of, what is it like to be a community that practices these things? And what kind of people do we become who practice these things? Baptism, Bible, Eucharist, and prayer. Um, so one of the things that I want to hit tonight is what does it mean to practice baptism as an ongoing reality? Certainly we're baptized in, in a once um, and maybe twice, maybe three times for some of us. I had some people share those kinds of stories at Pastorate this week. Um, and those are always interesting. But how do we live out our baptisms? What is the ongoing meaning and reality of what it means to be baptized into Christ? Um, but before I get into that, I, I just want to point out one thing in our psalm. Psalm 1. It's the first psalm. And it's not just the first psalm in number. It's the first psalm in priority in so many ways because it is the gateway to the rest of the Psalter. It is the gateway into wisdom how the wise ones act, the things that they do, the things that they dwell on. Um, and in many ways, it's, it's the gateway into our life in God. And I just wanted to point out this, this one phrase because I think it can help us sort of situate ourselves where we are right now. Um, and it's the phrase, as our translation has it, those um, who delight in the law of the Lord are not those who sit in the seat of the scornful or sit in the seat of the scoffer, um, which is kind of the translation that I grew up with. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, and who does not sit in the seat of the scoffer. And I want you to notice that progression of movement to paralysis. There's walking, there's standing, and then there's sitting. And that, that sitting in the seat of the scornful is a really easy uh, spot for me and for all of us to sit in right now. Um, and what I see with all of the negative polarization, and by negative polarization, what I mean is it's not, uh, 
that I disagree with people, it's that I hate those that I disagree with, is that whatever side people are on, at the root of that, for many people, is fear. And that fear has a paralyzing effect. And sometimes the um, consequence of that fear is to be in this place of paralysis and a scornful scoffing, which means I, I don't stand for anything positive. I just reject something else. That's the seed of the scornful. That's, and it's a place of paralysis, I would say. And so I, what I hear this psalm calling us to tonight before we talk about baptism, before we talk anything else, is the positive delighting in the law of the Lord. The one who is blessed doesn't walk, doesn't stand, doesn't sit in the seat of scornful, but delights in the law of the Lord. In the weeks to come, we'll talk about the Bible. We'll talk about the word of the Lord, that we are people who believe, as Roman says, uh, Rowan Williams says, that we serve a God who speaks. What, what does it mean to delight in the law of the Lord? It means that we are open and receptive to the one who speaks to us um, from his word, from his law. And I want you to look at this promise because to me, this is the great antidote to the fear and the anxiety that so many of us fear. It says, the one who delights in the law of the Lord is one who is like a tree planted by the waterside that will bring forth his fruit in due season, bringing forth fruit in its season. That's what we need right now, and that's what the world needs right now, is the people of God to bring forth the fruit, um, to nourish people, to delight people, to call people back to joy and to hope and away from fear and away from anxiety. So I speak this as a word of exhortation to myself because it's easy uh, to sit in the seat of the scornful. In fact, like our posture when we sit in the seat of scornful is like this, right? <laughs> ah! All the people that I hate, all the people I disagree with, the people that I hate follow. Have you heard that term before? I follow this person because I hate them. Hate following, that's a thing. That's, that's scoffing, that's scornful. But the antidote to that is delighting in the law of the Lord and being like a tree. So that's a different kind of passivity than sitting in the seat, right? It's putting yourself in that position knowing that you can't give yourself the things that you need to bring forth the fruit, but you are open and receptive to the water of the word, the water of the spirit to nourish that tree, to bring forth uh, the fruit in its season. So that's a free sermonette at the beginning before this because everything's ramping up, fear is multiplying, anxiety is multiplying, negative polarization is getting worse and worse, and I just feel like we have an opportunity to be people who are fruitful in season, to be people who are joyful and people who are hopeful. And how countercultural are all those things right now? And it's not naivete. It's delighting ourselves in the law of the Lord. It's delighting ourselves in wisdom and who God is. Amen? Okay, so now I'm going to talk about baptism. In the final section of his chapter on baptism, Rowan Williams uh, talks about baptism as anointing. So that's what I want to talk about tonight that to be baptized is to be anointed. So I want to talk about what anointing is, and I want to talk about the offices of anointing and what it means to be in Christ, to be baptized into Christ. And I want to start with the story of Israel. I'm going to start with the Exodus. So the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt, and when God brings them out, he brings them up to the boundary line of water, the Red Sea, And he hems them in and he makes it possible for them to pass through that watery chaos and for their enemies to be drowned in that water. 
Paul tells us that that is a picture of baptism. He says it explicitly in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, that the people of Israel were baptized into Moses when they passed through the Red Sea, and that we are baptized into Christ. And in Romans 6, he talks about death being drowned in the waters of baptism, and I think that that's an allusion to the Exodus story. And in Colossians 1, he says this, that Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So before we talk about baptism as an anointing, I want you to think about baptism as a boundary crossing. You move from one country into another country by passing through the waters of baptism. That the people of Israel moved out of slavery, out of darkness, out of the land of death into the land of freedom, the land of life, the land of light. They were transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom the promised land, and that baptism is the same for us, that we are delivered out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son. So before we think about baptism as anointing, think about it as a boundary crossing. We used to be citizens of this place, and now we are citizens of this place, and we are getting ourselves accustomed to the habits and practices of living in this new land, this new kingdom of God. So with that in mind, as baptism is a boundary crossing, I want you to think about Jesus' baptism and where it took place, the Jordan River. And at the Jordan River, when Joshua led the people out of the wilderness into the land of promise, what happened was a reenactment of the crossing of the Red Sea. And the waters parted, and the people of God went into the promised land. They passed through that boundary one more time, as a picture that God had brought them out of the king of darkness into the kingdom of promise. So think of Jesus as a new Joshua who's at that boundary line again, being baptized into that river, and he's about to go in on mission to the promised land like Joshua to confront the enemies of God. And Jesus' baptism in the Jordan is a boundary crossing, but it's also a declaration of the Lord's delight in his son. So when Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism, comes back up, the heavens open and the Lord speaks over him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So when we are baptized, we cross this boundary from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life and we hear the declaration of God's delight over us because we're baptized into Christ and Christ is the one in whom God delights. So therefore we are those in whom God delights, his beloved sons and daughters. Jesus is in the Jordan and the Holy Spirit comes down and he is anointed by the Holy Spirit in that moment, anointed for mission. And that's the one phrase that I'd love for you to take away from this, is that to be baptized, to be anointed, and to be anointed is to be anointed for mission. To put it in terms of the prophet Isaiah, and the verse that Jesus appealed to on his, to describe his own ministry, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, to set the captives free. Um, go and read those things. What anointing leads to is Jesus's mission. And what our anointing leads to is our mission as a people of God as well. To be anointed by the spirit is to be empowered for mission. And we see that in Jesus' life. Immediately he goes into the wilderness to do battle 
uh, with Satan, to rely on the Lord and in this very uh, heightened, charged way to show what it is to be someone who relies upon the Spirit of God. So to be anointed by the Spirit is to be empowered for mission. And Jesus, at his baptism, is the anointed one. He's the one in whom God delights. He crosses from the boundary line of one kingdom into another to bring about the promises of God. So, what does this have to do with us and our baptism? Like I said, we are baptized into Christ. And just, just remember, we've got to remember these simple things sometimes. What does Christ mean? It's the Greek word for Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Messiah means anointed one. The one who has been given a task. In the Old Testament, you would be anointed with oil and you were given a task. And this is what Rowan Williams points to in being Christian. That in the Old Testament, there were three anointed offices. The office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. And what he argues in his book is that we are baptized by extension into those offices. And that what it means to be Christian is to live into and out of the prophetic office, the priestly office, and the kingly office. That Jesus is the prophet par excellence, the priest par excellence, the king par par excellence, and yet we are baptized into him who has those ministry, those missions. And so by extension, we have that ministry and that mission. So we have a baptismal identity which is an anointed identity, which means we are empowered by the Spirit for mission. So I want to talk about the office of prophet, the office of priest, the office of king, and the implications that has for us in terms of what it means for us to live out of our baptismal identities, to live out of the declaration that we are those in whom God delights. You, my beloved children, and you I am well pleased, now go... And do these things, live out of the anointing of the Spirit. So the office of prophet, when we think of prophets, maybe the first thing that we think of is, you know, future telling, or here's all the bad stuff that's going to go down. And that's part of it. But the biggest part of the prophet's office is to call people back to things that they already know. That when Isaiah shows up, Jeremiah shows up, Elijah shows up, they're calling people back to what they already know. And the way that Rowan Williams puts this is that a prophet challenges the community to be what it is meant to be. The prophet challenges the community to be what it is meant to be. You probably have a friend like this in your life. I hope you have a friend like this in your life who can look you in the eye and say, hey, this isn't lining up, okay? This is who you say you are. This is what you say you value, I'm calling you back to that. It's not pure denunciation. It's not finger wagging. It's calling people back to what they already know. That's the prophetic role within the church. The prophetic role outside the church is to proclaim what is true and to proclaim that this is a place where there is a community who acts in this particular way, the community of baptism, Bible, Eucharist, and prayer. Rowan Williams says this, the prophet asks this question, what are we here for? (laughs) What a great question. That's actually one reason we're doing this series. It's like, what are we here for? You know, there's so many things that have been stripped away from us, um, how we're doing church. I mean, I'm staring into an iPhone and it's gonna go on YouTube. That's all new. 
things have been stripped away from us. But what are we here for? That's a great, that's the question of the office of prophet. And Jesus does this in his ministry, right? He calls people, Israel back to who they were meant to be through prophetic announcement and through prophetic action. Like when he turns the, the tables over in the temple, that's a prophetic action. Saying this, hey, the temple's not meant for this. It's meant to be a house of prayer. It's not meant to be a place for money changers. That's a prophetic action. So to, to live out of the, pro, the prophetic anointing in the way that Williams is talking about it is to live out of the integrity of the Christian life and through the way that we live and through the way that we talk to others is to call people back to what they already know who are in the faith and to call the world into what they don't know, that this is what the church is about. Maybe you've heard something else, but maybe you've experienced something else, but the church is about this. So that's the office of prophet. Priest. Now, formally, I'm a priest, but we believe in the priesthood of all believers. And God said to his people at Sinai, even though they had their own priesthood, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. We're a kingdom of priests because the role of the priest, the priest is someone who builds a bridge between God and humanity when that relationship has been wrecked. That's the way Williams puts it. I think that's a pretty good description. A priest is someone who builds a bridge between God and humanity when that relationship has been wrecked connecting God and humanity. Um, Michael Ramsey, he was Archbishop of Canterbury, Anglican theologian of the 20th century. He says that the priestly office is about connecting the heart of God to the people and about connecting the heart of the people to God. It's that mediatorial space. And I do that, Jay does that in a formal way, but we're all called to that. that. The way that Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians is that we're given the ministry of reconciliation. That's a priestly ministry. When we say, hey, this is a broken thing that needs to be mended. That's a priestly ministry. And the other aspect of priestliness that I want to call our attention to is that you know, what we do at this table when we lift up the goods of creation to God and we say, this is an offering of thanksgiving and praise, that's what we're meant to do with our lives. That's part of what it means to be the priesthood of all believers is that we take the things that God has given us and we are fruitful with them and then we lift them back up to God in praise and thanksgiving. This is a priestly move, right? We like to do stuff with our hands. This is one of the things we like to do, right? This. And you're supposed to do that too. You're supposed to take the stuff that God has given you and lift it back up to God in praise and thanksgiving. And that's part of living into the anointing of the priesthood of believers, so we have the office of prophet, we have the, prophet, the office of priest, and then we have the royal office or the kingly office. This is one reason I wanted to draw attention to Psalm 1 because what's going on in Psalm 1 is echoing what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's a list of qualifications uh, to be the king of God's people. And one of the things that the king of God's people was supposed to do, and I wonder if this ever even happened in the history of Israel, is that you're, they were supposed to copy out the Torah by hand. <laughs> because they were supposed to be a Torah king. They were supposed to be a king of the law because that, their, their rule and reign, their attempt to bring justice was supposed to be rooted in God and what he had commanded his people to do. So 
the first thing in the kingly role is that the king delights in the law of the Lord because the king delights in the justice of God. So when you, when you read back through the Psalms, I want you to look for this, where it talks about the king being the one who brings justice, who brings about the way that things are supposed to be. See, the prophet proclaims those things, but the king enacts those things. It's a more executive kind of thing. The way that Williams puts it is that the royal calling is about how we freely engage in shaping our lives and our human environment in the direction of God's justice. Let me read that again. The royal calling, the kingly calling, is about how we freely engage in shaping our lives and our human environment in the direction of God's justice. But we have no chance of knowing what God says is just and unjust if we don't delight in his word. Because that's where, through story, through proclamation, through the Psalms, through his word, he shows us what is good. He shows us what is just. And the king brings that to bear in the world. So part of what it means to be the church is that we bring God's justice to bear in the world. The prophet proclaims that, says, hey, this is the thing that things are meant to be. The priest brings it back together when those things have been torn apart and the king goes forth and enacts it. And you can see that we desperately need all three of these things. We need all of these things working in concert to each other. If we just have the prophetic, it's, it, then it can come off as shrill and just we're just denouncing. This is my action for denouncing, denouncing and wagging the finger, right? <clears throat> can't just be finger wagging all the time. And it can't just be lovey-dovey reconciliation all the time. And it can't just be, hey, we're marching forth in the king's justice, but we haven't told you what it is and we haven't made a way for you to be right with God. When all that stuff breaks down, we're just, gonna, we're just gonna go for it. We've got our agenda. We've got the executive order. We're going. We need all three. And no one of us is all three of them together. We need the body. I need, I need your prophetic calling back to each other of, hey, this is the way things are meant to be. I need, we need, St. Bart's needs that priestly role of here's what's been cut off and God wants to draw back together. Here's what needs to be reconciled. And we need, we need that royal impulse of this is what God has said is good. This is what God has said is bad. This is what God has said is just. This is what God has said is unjust. And let's go try to make the world look more and more like that. We need all three. So we are those who are baptized into Christ. Christ is the one in whom the Lord delights. That's not a static reality. That's a dynamic reality to go forth into mission. To be anointed is to be anointed for something. These anointed offices give us a picture of what we're called to as baptized people. We're called to this prophetic office. We're called to this priestly office. We're called to the royal office. There's a church in Cape Cod, I've talked about it before, called the Church of the Transfiguration. It's one of the most beautiful churches that I've ever been to. Um, They have like real Italian mosaics and frescoes. Like I didn't even know some people could paint frescoes anymore, but they found somebody in Italy who could do it and they flew them over. And they have these beautiful frescoes and the whole center aisle is a mosaic. Hand laid tile, beautiful. It's a tree of life. And winding down that tree of life is a waterway. It's a picture of Psalm 1. There's a tree. It's fruitful. It's full of birds. It's full of fruit. And 
that water that's flowing down comes down from the altar. The mosaic starts on their altar, and it comes down here, and it goes there, and it's flowing outward. And about three-quarters of the way down the aisle, there's a baptismal font. So you're baptized into those waters that is completely connected with this tree of life, what happens at the table. But the river in that church doesn't start stop there. It keeps going. The river keeps going. It goes out the door. And then right outside the doors of the church, there's this beautiful fountain bursting forth with, with fresh and living water. And that, to me, is a picture of living out of baptismal identity, is that this river of life that we've been baptized into, that all that can kill us and hurt us has been buried in those waters, we've been raised up from those waters, and that we're meant to extend the life offered by baptism, baptism to the world. It's not just closed up in the church. It's going forth into the world. That's why we say, let us go forth into the world, rejoicing in the power of the Spirit, rejoicing in the one who anoints us, rejoicing in the one who empowers us to go be prophets, to be priests, to be kings. Matthew 28, Jesus, after his resurrection, stands in front of his disciples. He stands in front of them as the perfect priest, the perfect prophet, the perfect king, and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, therefore go. Go into the world and baptize people into the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptize them into the the royal name of God, the holy triune name of God. Give them the opportunity to become a part of the family of God and then teach them. That great commission, I want you to think of that great commission in baptismal terms. We are the baptized ones. We are the ones who have been immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, go. Go, therefore. Be prophets. Be priests. Be kings. Be those ones in whom the Lord delights, just as he delights in his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our perfect prophet, our perfect priest, our perfect king. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.